0: As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews.
1: What we found is that every time Hillary Clinton said, this will be dangerous, this will be dangerous, he'll do this, he'll do that, all of which, of course, prescient and true. But what people heard was danger. And when people hear danger, at least some significant segment of the population, they look for going back to lake off a strict father, they want daddy to protect them. And so what happens is we have to be attentive to the prevailing message we're sending. And basically, what we know is that fear and anger work for them.
0: Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I enjoyed my conversation with Anat Schenker Osorio, who is principal at ASO Communications. Anat brings her background in cognitive linguistics to her political communications work. She studied with George Lakoff, author of Don't Think of an Elephant, and worked with him at the former Rockridge Institute, a progressive think tank, before starting her own communications firm. Anat is working on her own podcast as well to be called The Good Word, which will focus on significant campaigns around the world and how they were won on messaging. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Anat Schenker Osorio with ASO Communications. So Anat, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
1: Sure, no problem. My name is Anat Shanker Osorio, and I'm a communications consultant based in California. My background is in cognition and linguistics, which is just a fancy way of saying that I look at why certain messages resonate where others don't. I do experiments sometimes qualitative, often quantitative, where we will take different ways of talking about the same concept, sometimes even different isolated wording choices, and we will see which ways of doing that draw people to either a more progressive conclusion, i.e. they are more persuasive, or they prove to be more galvanizing, meaning among people that already agree with us. They make them want to act more, turn out more, give more, participate more.
0: It sounds like a pretty important place to be right now when we kind of have a battle for the soul of the country going on.
1: Yeah. In this post-truth, post-reality, up is down, I think that words are pretty important. And uh, the meanings of words and the ways that we communicate seem pretty vital.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up and... Uh, your educational background?
1: Yeah. When I was really little, I grew up in Israel, a short lived stint there with my family. And then like many immigrants, we moved all together to the U S and I did most of my secondary school here Lived in New York for a stint in college and began to study linguistics there. Got introduced as anyone who sort of spends a couple minutes in linguistics to a seminal scholar named George Lakoff, who arguably founded the field of what we call cognitive linguistics, this idea that all of language is actually embedded in the body, that the ways that we reason and come to judgments actually emerge from the lived experiences that we have. So for example, to make that slightly less abstract, the fact that we have a very, very strong and prevailing metaphor in English, not just in English, across language families, that affection is warmth. And that's why we say things like, he gave me the cold shoulder or she was a warm person. The reason that we have that metaphor is because as babies, we experience physical warmth as actually being affection, as we're being held. And that sort of is a very lay crude explanation of some of cognitive linguistics. I went off and did, I think we could call, more regular political comms.
0: You you went and got a master's in in...
1: Yes. So after doing some sort of regular political comms work and seeing, I think most people would admit to you if they were feeling very honest... That lots of the communications that we do, whether it be in progressive organizations or on campaigns, is basically some equivalent of sticking your finger up in the wind and being like, yeah, that sounds good. We'll say it that way. Or more recently, that URL is available. We'll call it that. And realizing, having done a background in linguistics, that there was more to it than that and that there was an actual study of why certain words in certain order are more effective than others. And so then, yeah, we moved to Berkeley and I studied under Lakoff here. I also at the same time got a public policy degree working with Robert Reich and then went off to work at the institute that Lakoff had founded, the Rockridge Institute, which is no more. And from there sort of landed into the present consulting that I do.
0: I just want to, always kind of interested in, in Lakoff and in politics, I think he had a book about moral politics and did some work on language in the Gulf War run-up and things like that. What were the main things you learned working with him?
1: Well, I think that moral politics and sort of the intentional simplification of it that many of your listeners will know, don't think of an elephant, is really the laying out of what we might call moral foundations theory, basically What George did is he looked at political ideology and being a linguist, he saw a categorization problem, meaning he looked at positions which one could consider to be contradictory, say, for example, being against the death penalty, but being supportive of a woman's right to abortion and saying, how do those things fit together? How is that a category? How is this sort of slate of beliefs that we think of as a progressive worldview? And conversely, the other slate of beliefs that we think of as a conservative worldview, what is kind of the underlying Ethos or ideology or the through line that make these things make sense. And what George came to that he wrote about in Moral Politics was this idea of a strict father versus a nurturant parent worldview. A strict father worldview being kind of the backbone of a conservative idea, this belief that the way that you kind of make a good nation or create a good society is under the guidance, under even the thumb, if you will, of a really strong leader with a careful attention to hierarchy. So animals being lower than people, white being over black or people of color, men being over women, straight being over gay, haves being over the have nots. And sort of this entire rigid idea that the reason why, for example, some people are poor is because they are literally worth less, not just financially, but morally, and that things are kind of as they should be. That the world is working as it should because hierarchy is kind of a natural part of the order and attempts to mess with that by, say, doing redistribution or providing social welfare or dealing with um, historic and ongoing discrimination through a policy like affirmative action is actually a mucking around in the quote unquote natural order of things. I hope it's clear. These are not my beliefs.
0: (laughs) Very Hobbesian sort of world there. Yes.
1: Yeah. So what George sort of brought to the world and you know, is rightly credited is both kind of how do you take apart this worldview and how do you also make sense, importantly, of your own worldview and what the through line is. But more than anything, I think what he's known for and his most popular book, Don't Think of an Elephant, the title says it all, that when you're arguing on their terms, when you're arguing in their frame, you're losing. So when we attempt, for example, and this is something that I yell and scream about a lot, when we try to make an argument that says we should be concerned about the deficit and the way to handle the deficit is to raise revenue, that is a classic We all agree tacitly that the task at hand is who loves the economy best, and now we're going to have an argument, and they're going to say, we love the economy best. You make sweet love to the economy by giving rich people tax cuts, and we say, no, we love the economy best, and the way you make love to the economy is by paying working people an additional few cents an hour and only beating them on Tuesdays. But we've already ceded essentially the moral high ground by contending that the argument is who is best going to grow GDP, when, of course, that is not the purpose of life at all. The purpose of life is who is better for people.
0: And this is sort of a lot of the subject of your own book, right?
1: Yeah. So my own book is an analysis specifically of the way people reason and come to judgments about the economy and a look at, more than anything, the metaphors that we tend to use about the economy.
0: And what what's sort of the thesis of that book?
1: The thesis of that book, in a nutshell, is that there's this prevailing tendency, and it's actually interesting, in the course of writing the book, I ended up having um, a bunch of conversations with economic historians who actually told me that the origin story of laissez-faire, the French phrase, of course, for Leave the Market Alone, actually emerged pre-economics being a field that sort of only formally happened under Adam Smith, But that it was actually done by a French doctor who wanted to create the sense of the economy as an autonomous thing that was self-governed, that was ideally self-directed, and that should not be subjected to, quote-unquote, external interference, i.e. government. So what we find when we look at metaphors for the economy is that we still have this prevailing tendency to liken the economy Unconsciously to something natural. So we say, for example, the economy is healthy, it's unhealthy, it's thriving. Under Obama, of course, we had a quote unquote recovery bill. And what we know is that when we use this language, when we unconsciously liken this abstraction that is the economy, which of course is no real thing at all. You can't go hang out with the economy. You can't invite it to dinner. It's just a convention by which we measure human activity. When we... Take that abstract thing and we use language that compares it to something natural. In the cases of the language I was using, a human body is probably the closest thing. What we're doing is the entire set of things that we know to be true or that we believe about human bodies, we transfer them. Onto to the economy. And we know that because we have done experiments where we expose people to say a paragraph in this kind of body language about the economy being healthy, the economy being unhealthy, recovering, not recovering, struggling, it's under cardiac arrest, we need to resuscitate it, and then ask their policy preferences around different kinds of government intervention in the economy. And what we find is that when we prime people with this natural metaphor, they become less receptive. Because if you think about your body and you think about circulation and digestion and all the things that are happening in this moment, yes, of course, if you were to have a huge heart failure or a stroke, you would want immediate medical attention, you would want emergency aid. But as far as the business of daily living... Someone pushing on your chest or someone, quote unquote, helping you swallow does not sound all that pleasant. And in fact, it sounds kind of detrimental. So when we use that kind of language, we actually sort of act against our own interest in a way that is really powerful, precisely because it's not consciously perceived. The person hearing it does not think, oh, when you say the economy is healthy, you're trying to make me believe, you're trying to make me disfavor government intervention in the economy. And you contrast that with other language that we also see commonly about the economy, which likens it to a vehicle. So it's on the right track, it's on the wrong track. We talk about accelerating job losses. And in fact, as many of you probably know, a lot of the language of economics is actually borrowed from the language of physics, right? So we have ideas like friction, friction um in the economy. And what we find is that when we talk about the economy in these vehicle terms, because the way that we tend to think about a vehicle is that they have drivers, they are not best left to their own devices, we actually make a stronger case for ourselves when we then ask them policy questions around government action.
0: You want someone steering the economy in the right direction then. Yeah. So I'm, I'm also curious, you, you had mentioned that you worked with Robert Reich, who's obviously well-known liberal economist and former labor secretary. What was working with him like?
1: He's just delightful. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's hard <laughs> to say anything about him without just sort of laughing and just being delighted at his person during the course of my time. A bunch of my classmates had a birthday party for me sort of out on the lawn of the policy school and Reich was around. It was the weekend. He must've been grading or something. I don't know why he was there. And there was this giant cake and I was trying to sort of press him to eat more cake because A, I'm Jewish, B, it was cake, C, there was a lot of it. I didn't want to take it home. (laughs) So I was trying to get him to eat cheat cake and... You probably know, right? He's famously an incredibly short person. And by short, I mean short. Like, I am not a tall person, and he is not as tall as I am. So I want to get- He's like
0: under five feet tall or something, right?
1: Right. He's he's not a tall man. So I'm trying to get him to eat this cake, and he basically said something to the effect of, have you looked at me? A certain amount of cake, and I will just become a bowling ball. (laughs) (laughs) He's very self-effacing, very available- Just a fun guy, really.
0: And has really taken a significant role in sort of resistance communication in the last couple of years, hasn't he?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think he was a pretty reluctant politician. I think that the kind of extreme extroversion, he sometimes tells stories about being in the law school with Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and Clarence Thomas. They were all in the same law school class. Can you even imagine the extroversion required of being a politician where you can just sort of make it through an entire day of glad handing, that's just kind of not his temperament. And I think he really has the temperament of a writer and a communicator and a scholar and a teacher. And all of those things obviously have a deep fixation. Not that a politician doesn't because they do, but those things are all deeply rooted in persuasive communication. And so I think that's been a real hallmark of who he is and how he thinks
0: pretty good background for what you do. Tell me about your time at the rock Ridge Institute.
1: Well, it's a tough question to answer. It was, um, it was a challenging place. I think that, um, George is, brilliant and really deserves um, a lot of credit for innovation, specifically in the field of cognitive linguistics. I think it's always an incredibly challenging thing when an academic attempts to, well, that's actually not fair. I think it's really challenging when anyone has an entire career, an entire sort of way of being in the world, and then attempts to enter this completely other world, which is the world, in this case, of running a nonprofit when you've literally spent all of your life in school, either as a learner or as a teacher. And I think that there were a lot of challenges around kind of operational things. But I learned a lot. And I think the most important things that I learned that I use today are that in academia, in social science, Basically, all social science is just pattern recognition, right? And in linguistics, pattern recognition happens to occur around language. But in sociology or in anthropology or even in political science, when you boil it down, that's what social science is. It's just looking at patterns in some kind of observable data and trying to draw conclusions about why you're seeing those patterns and what the larger answer is for what's going on. And what academia really focuses on is diagnosis. This isn't good. This isn't good. This isn't working. This happened because of this. And diagnosis is super, super useful. It's useful to know that metaphors for the economy that liken it to something natural are problematic. And here's the analytic reason. Turns out when we do an experiment, that folds up. But what we really need is cure. Meaning, what do you say instead? If you figured out that it is problematic to talk about taxes as a burden by saying things like tax relief or, you know, we need tax relief and middle class families can't handle the tax burden, once you've figured out that that frame is problematic that's useful. But as an activist, as an advocate, as a person who has to do communications, you don't actually have time to dig into the deeper whys and wherefores. You need to know what to say instead. And you've got to write a press release or you've got to write a speech or you've got to get on TV and say a thing or prep your candidate to do it. And so I think what I really learned and what I attempt to apply today is sort of how do you go from that diagnosis to what should you say instead? And that is really not something that you learn in academia.
0: What was the mission of Rockridge?
1: The mission of Rockridge was essentially to take the insights of cognitive linguistics and take it out of the academy and apply it. So to take these notions of framing and language and how to get better at being both persuasive and galvanizing and Bring those tools and ideas to organizations on the ground, so that they could get better at their messaging.
0: What was your path to starting your own communications firm, and why did you do that?
1: Complete and total accident. I have a theory that anyone who tells you that they have this grand career plan laid out—I of course don't know your career trajectory—so watch you be the no
0: grand plan, no grand plan.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So this idea that anyone has measured out from the get-go i guess maybe if you're like a weirdo bill clinton type who's like came out of the womb and it's like i'm gonna be president i guess those people exist
0: not many of them become president though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> for the most part i think it's all just a series of accidents so after rockridge myself and the other people who'd been in sort of management positions we founded our own Um, a different nonprofit consulting firm to kind of try to take what we were doing at Rockridge and make it happen under a different structure. I helped co-launch that with them. We were there for the first year, we all took no pay. It was just complete and total an utter madness, crazy thing to do, especially as a young person. I happen to have been pregnant at the time. All sorts of really stupid decision-making characterized my career trajectory, um, if you haven't already gotten that idea.
0: Sometimes that pays off, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then I ended up feeling like I can't handle this. I need someone else to write me a paycheck. I need to not be chasing after my paycheck because both in terms of Rockridge and at this um, organization that I helped co-found, you know, I was chasing down paychecks, right? I was chasing down money to pay us. And I said, no, I'm going to go work somewhere where I know the check is going to clear and someone's going to pay me. And maybe it's not going to be the most inspiring thing. And I ended up this was in late 2008. I ended up negotiating for an offer at a foundation. That year, of course, the height of the financial crash and everything sort of going down. And in the midst of that negotiation, their endowment shrunk to such a degree as that they just got rid of the position. Coincidentally, the day that I found that out was also the day that my husband got laid off. Oh, no. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> um super smart very strategic so basically i fell into consulting i spent that year interviewing for jobs kind of your more traditional comms director jobs at organizations where you have to sort of do a bit of everything, not just the messaging side of things, but also the media side of things. So not just what are you going to say, but what are the modes and methods that you're going to get people to listen to it. And in the meantime, because I needed to make money, I was consulting at the same time. And basically, over the course of that year, I came to find that if I spent one quarter of the energy on just trying to land consulting gigs that I had been spending on interviewing for these positions, then maybe I could just make a go of that. And that was 2009. And basically, it's been that way ever since. So accidentally.
0: Well, it's not totally accidentally. And you're fairly prepared to do that kind of consulting. Who are the types of clients that you've found? And what sort of work have you done for them?
1: All sorts. At the beginning, I did a bunch of work, and that's why I ended up writing a book on it on perceptions of the economy, how to talk about the economy itself. Then I worked for the Roosevelt Institute did sort of that background seminal work that became the work they've carried forward so brilliantly with Joe Stiglitz and with Felicia Wong at the helm on inequality and how to talk about inequality. If you would like me to go off for a very long time, ask me about the word gap. I can spend a lot of time on how piss poor, a descriptor for inequality, first of all, the word inequality itself, and second of all, the gap metaphor, bane of my existence And then I moved on from there to do some international work. I think some of the work that I'm most proud of, I spent 2015, we spent 2015 in Australia and I was engaged more than anything in two things. Number one, a giant project for the sector, the asylum and refugee sector on how to talk about people seeking asylum. For those of you who know anything about Australia, you know that one of its sort of Black, black, black marks in a country that is in many respects much more progressive than our own. But one real black mark on its record, and not the only one, is its treatment of people seeking asylum. It's abysmal. They shuttle them off to two different offshore remote locations. They're essentially kind of the equivalent of Guantanamo, and they have people there for decades. This has been going on for years and years and years. And as of this year, finally, actually, that's ending. So a giant project on changing perceptions of people seeking asylum, why they seek asylum, how they're treated, and a very, very strong bring them here campaign to end this sort of offshore detention I worked a little bit. I'm proud to say I did some of the background work and messaging on the Ireland abortion referendum that just happened last year. Our message there was a woman you love might need your yes, a commitment and a really kind of contentious one to have messaging that was pro-abortion as opposed to anti-restrictions.
0: That last one's a very good one. It really resonates. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I got to do some work in New Zealand with the Labour Party and through that acquainted with folks on the Jacinda Arden campaign. She's the Prime Minister of New Zealand, the youngest head of state in the world. I often tell my clients that the winning message I've never gotten anyone in the US to actually take me up on this, but that in some total the winning message is we can have nice things. And Jacinda, I'm I'm proud and happy to say, essentially, Rana, we can have nice things campaign. That was not officially her slogan, but if you look through sort of her ads and speeches, that that kind of was the theme. It was not deprivations and harms. It was not work hard and play by the rules. It was, you know what? We are a wealthy, beautiful, wonderful country, and we can have nice things if these rich... I'm I'm trying to decide which words I'm not allowed to use on your podcast. I should have asked you.
0: You could use any word you want.
1: Okay. These rich motherfuckers would just actually.
0: You've been talking to Rashida Tlaib.
1: Yeah. I guess the last example I would offer the biggest project that I was engaged in, it's funny. I didn't start with this over the last year and a half. um, I did a big project with Ian Haney Lopez, who's a Berkeley law scholar and wrote the book Dog Whistle Politics, and with SDIU and with Demos, with like research partners and Brilliant Corners as our pollsters, did a giant project on perceptions of race and how to talk about race and link it to class. And that work, the race-class narrative, as we call it, ended up being the backbone or the kind of core message for a lot of different congressional races, gubernatorial races. So this last cycle, I spent a lot of time kind of writing ads and working on kind of getting the race class narrative into campaigns.
0: I'm curious about your observations about the general messaging in the 2016 presidential race.
1: does, Does the podcast come with Prozac? (laughs) <laughs> I think the quickest summary statement that I could give on it is we just keep telling the other side's story.
0: I th- I thought you would say that that we spent a huge amount of our time saying Trump is bad and sort of echoing all the things that he almost wanted us to know or feel.
1: Yeah, and actually I can take it a step farther and say that early on, still during the primary, I was involved in um, some neuroimaging research, I can't say for whom, where we actually looked at the brains of not the hardest Trump partisans, not the early, you know, the people who were Trump from day one, but the people who were kind of late breaking for Trump. And what we found is that every time Hillary Clinton said He's dangerous, he's dangerous, he's dangerous. This is, you know, this will be dangerous, this will be dangerous. He'll do this, he'll do that. All of which, of course, prescient and true, um, not negating that. But what people heard was danger. And when people hear danger, at least. Some significant segment of the population they look for going back to Lake Off, a strict father, they want daddy to protect them. And so, what happens is we have to be attentive to the prevailing message we're sending. And basically, what we know is that fear and anger work for them, fear and anger lather up their base, and it's their task to lather up their base in order to convince the middle. Because what the middle are are the people who are quintessentially of mixed minds. They're capable of holding progressive worldviews and they're capable of holding conservative ones. And what they hear repeated over and over again becomes quote unquote common sense. It becomes prevailing wisdom. And so when you have a slogan, for example, like Make America Great Again, it doesn't work if the only people repeating it are the campaign. You have to actually get the base, to repeat it to the middle, because the middle is then saying, oh, that must be what's true about the world, because that's what I keep hearing over and over again. Oftentimes, when I'm giving this talk in a room full of progressives, I will say, how many of you have a stronger together hat? And unless it's SEIU, because that slogan was SEIU before Clinton took it, they just look at me mystified, because they literally don't remember what I'm talking about. They don't know what's stronger together. That doesn't mean anything to them. And that, of course, as you may know, (laughs) was the Clinton slogan. And so if you're sort of flying through middle America and you see a sea of MAGA hats and you see not a single stronger together hat, then what are you to conclude? So we had both problems, right? We had both the, I mean, we had the problem more than anything, the numbers tell it, that people didn't turn out. But that turnout problem, again, comes to that same origin, which is Martin Luther King didn't get famous for saying, I have a complaint, right? Nor did he get famous for saying, I have a multi-bulleted list of policy proposals. There actually has to be a dream. You have to be for something, not merely against something else. Otherwise, what people are going to do is just sit at home.
0: So do you think a Democrat running on weekend have nice things does a lot better?
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that...
0: has kind of a ring to it on a hat.
1: Thanks. (laughs) Um, Free. Free for the taking. There's even, you know, you could just like dub over Jacinda's voice so that uh, the, the Kiwi accent isn't there. I think that might be confusing to Americans. And just go with it, really.
0: You know, it's funny because when I interviewed Hillary's campaign manager some time ago, he said in his... I believe he was talking about the post-election experience and some conversations he had, he mentioned saying, I guess we just can't have nice things.
1: That's perfect.
0: Uh, So sad. So what are you up to right now with your firm? What What are your kind of goals moving into the future? What kind of innovations are you putting in place? How are you approaching the run up to 2020 here and around the world?
1: Well, I think because um the race class narrative has been so powerful and it's been reproven we seem to have escaped the uh plague that is haunting social science the replication crisis where people come up with a finding and then anyone who tries to recreate it doesn't we've actually had our own results replicated independently 11 times by different organizations so that feels pretty good. I think The crux of the race class narrative is this idea that what we need to do is we actually need to narrate the dog whistle. And the reason that I bring this up in answer to your question is because this applies not just in the U.S., but of course- rising right-wing nationalism oh i forgot to say last year i also did a soros fellowship on the discourse of right-wing nationalism in the u.s uk and australia so i spent lots of quality time in white nationalist chat rooms that might explain my attitude looking at their discourse and kind of attempting to understand what is if you will the brand promise of white nationalism
0: hey what why you why you mention that as an aside what is it
1: you know what is terrifying when you actually look at it, obviously goes without saying that the core of white nationalism, and I mean that, you know, in terms of what was behind the Brexit, I mean that in terms of non white nationalism, when you look at a country like India, when you look at uh Brazil, when you look at white nationalism in Hungary and Poland, Slovenia, Turkey, right, everyone, it's like dominoes, right? This is not a US phenomenon by any means. It's it's well, well, well beyond. The core of the promise, of course, minus in India, where it's Hindu nationalism, is white supremacy. But when you actually look at their chat rooms and you look at what their outreach strategy is to the next tier, so not the true believers, but the next people in their recruiting, the brand promise that they offer is belonging. They're saying the world will make sense here. You will have a place here. Things will be in order you will not feel left out. And, you know, the grand irony of the kind of bowling alone phenomenon that we know about people's feeling of isolation and detachment and not being in community, that kind of hyper vicious capitalism has wrought upon us, is that it's created this opening for a discourse that says, you will belong. And of course, the swiftest way to make people feel like they belong, there's no swifter route to an us than the creation of a them and that's really what we see in the race class narrative that it's the construction of a them and whether that them be in historic times the jews or the roma as as it is right now in eastern europe or whether it be immigrants latinos in the united states african americans muslims in india the construction of a them and the blaming of a them the intentional division right is dividing us from each other what we really find is that when we shift in the message from narrating the problem statement as kind of your classic Bernie Sanders populism, which is perfectly good, right? The wealthy and well-connected are taking from the rest of us and making it harder and harder for people to make ends meet. They're rigging the rules in their favor. That's a perfectly acceptable problem statement. However, it doesn't account for racial inequities and it doesn't account for what the other side is constantly saying. And what we find in experimentation is that if you're out somewhere in America and someone has knocked on your door and said, MS-13 is coming to kill you, and then a day later, another person comes and knocks on your door and says, free college, your response is free college sounds great, but I'm dead. And so a populism message alone that is not attendant to racial justice doesn't work in the world because politics isn't solitaire. Our messages need to attend to what the other side is saying. And so instead, what we find. And not just in the US, we recently, they recently just used this to incredible effect in Australia, in the Victorian election, Victoria is the second largest state where Melbourne is, they ran essentially the same campaign that was a version of a bunch of the campaigns we ran here last cycle using the race class narrative, and won seats that the right wing parties have held for decades. The folks who are thinking about redoing the Brexit are also looking at the race class narrative. So a lot of what I'm up to, long-winded answer, is kind of looking at how we can translate the race class narrative and this understanding that no matter what our differences, whether we're white, black, or brown, most of us want pretty similar things. But today, a handful of wealthy people and the politicians they pay for divide us from each other based on what we look like or where we come from, so that while we're distracted, they turn around and rig the rules in their own favor. That's sort of the difference, the difference between just narrating populism and narrating the use of scapegoating in order to enable plutocracy.
0: That's quite interesting. I wanted to pick up on that notion of people in white nationalist chat rooms seeking belonging. It's its very reminiscent of what a guy I talked to named Christian Picciolini said who who uh is a former hate group member who's been working to pull people out of them he said exactly that that that's why he joined as a teenager in in a kind of neo nazi sort of world and why and what works to pull people out but like in the political context, how do you think you can use that insight or that knowledge to help thwart the the white nationalist movement in the u s
1: Yeah, I think a couple of things. Number one, I think the reason why we see traction and we see the efficacy of RCN, of the race class narrative, is because it's saying they're doing this to you on purpose. They're dividing us from each other. They're intentionally separating us out into little groups, or they're intentionally, the more pointed version, scapegoating, or shaming and blaming people of color, shaming and blaming people who can't make ends meet, shaming and blaming new immigrants, depending on what the context is. That allows people to see that kind of this intentional division that is how they're manufacturing a sense of belonging, belonging to a kind of fake white male heterosexual ethno state is just a made up thing that is what allows them to steal from you. So one thing that's working that we see is just kind of explaining how racial justice fits together inside and part and parcel and enables the plutocracy that makes people, these people who are seeking belonging, these people who are vulnerable to these appeals that feel you know, like I didn't get my due, and things aren't going the way that I thought that they were going to go, and this isn't the future I thought. You know that I was promised and was going to have, and so on and so forth. You have to actually explain to them the process. But then the other thing, the other big answer, comes out of John Joe's work. He's a um, a psychologist at NYU who's written for years and shown that. When you look at the psychological predisposition that correlates most closely to political ideology, there's this folk theory that it's empathy, that people who are progressive, they tend to be progressive because they are more empathetic. If you've spent 14 seconds on the left, you know that that is not true (laughs) because we are very mean, which actually ties back to this belonging problem. Which is that I think it's a legitimate problem. And maybe it's more of a problem for me because I live in the Bay Area. But woker than thou is real, right? This kind of competitive, performative wokeness that I like to call it, this ostracism, ostracism.
0: You're never pure enough out there.
1: You're never pure enough. You messed up this thing. You didn't get this thing right. You obviously don't care about these people. I mean, on the one hand, I'm ride or die racial justice, and I just spent, you know, 18 months, and I'm still fighting with the powers that be inside of the democratic establishment, that it's not just that we can talk about race, it's actually that we have to, and that our messages are more potent and more powerful when we name race. And this false idea that quote, unquote, identity politics, which of course, is a right wing idea that in a normal country, we would call human rights, but this is not a normal country, that that's them just agitating. like I mean, the whole thing is just so absurd. The notion that you don't actually address what's happening in the world and somehow you're going to have a message that is just magically race neutral when the other side is living, sleeping, eating, breathing, fire breathing, dragon race all the time is just so stupid. So on the one hand, I'm totally there. On the other hand, I think that it's not empathy. It's actually, we know what we call tolerance of ambiguity. So what tolerance of ambiguity, if you take a tolerance of ambiguity test, it would ask you questions like, to what extent do you agree, disagree? I want tomorrow to be like today. I maintain few close friendships throughout life. The idea of going to a party where no one is like me is really scary. It's basically how comfortable are you with unknown outcomes, with non black and white, with complexity, and unsurprisingly, the more intolerant of ambiguity you are, the more conservative you are. So you take that and you think about life today. You think about the condition of the modern human in most of the places we've been talking about, and you think about how quickly life is changing. And when I say changing, I mean what people do for a living, what we eat, how we get food, how you and I are communicating, how we receive information, what family structures are like, how women, quote unquote, are supposed to behave, how men behave, how children treat their elders, everything about- And
0: notably, who has power in society.
1: And who has power in society. And you think about the rate of that change. And you contrast it with other times homo sapiens have gone through radical shifts in sort of what is it like to live as a human being on earth. And you think about, for example, the move from hunting and gathering to settled agriculture, which was you know, took a lot of time. And then you think about the next massive shift, which is the Industrial Revolution, where people kind of left the farm, left the family farm and came into the cities, which was another really radical change in terms of social structure and what you do in order to make money, in order to survive, family size, etc. And now you look at today, and those two shifts, they seem like crawling compared to the rate at which things are changing. And so if you're a person for whom change is fundamentally aversive, right, you're neophobic, you do not like change, then the condition of modern life is a complete and total assault on your brain. And so of course, you are looking for belonging. And of course, you're looking specifically for this promise of going back in time to, quote unquote, make America great again, to a time where, according to you, things made sense, there was logic, there was order, you knew your place, other people knew their place. And so I think that the answer, besides actually narrating how this intentional division, how this scapegoating of people of color, of women, of queer folks, of whoever the kind of Target is today, and it's usually all of the above and some combination. First of all, we have to actually get clear that that is what's happening and that it's happening in order to enable plutocracy, which at the end of the day is going to fuck all of us, no matter what we look like or where we come from. And then the second thing is, I think we actually have to be attendant to the kinds of belonging that we are creating for people and how we balance the need to take those who are most harmed and to take those who have been historically silenced, bring them to the forefront, which I think is incredibly important. I think that is the way that you get good democratic decision-making and outcomes, but also being attended to the fact that we're human beings and we need to feel a sense that things are going to be okay, which ties it back to this question of whether our messaging is going to be this is the titanic would you like to buy a ticket i frequently tell people that i can summarize all of left-wing messaging in a couple of sentences it's boy have i got a problem for you this is the titanic would you like to buy a ticket and thirdly we're the losing team also we lose a lot we recently lost so you should join us
0: i ho- i really hope that's not all of it um what are you trying to position yourself for going forward? Are you, I don't know, the progressive Frank Luntz? Where do you want to take your career?
1: That makes me sound so much more kind of strategic and intentional than I am. <laughs> um, I'm going to manufacture an answer to that because an answer to that makes me sound smart.
0: I mean, if I if I were going to answer that for you, I would say something like, I have very passionate intersection of interests around communications and politics and and social justice and I found a niche there and I'm going to keep working in it but tell me how you answer it
1: yeah one of the major things that I've been focused on I was focused on it last year I intend to stay focused on it is correcting my own hypocrisy ha 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 and what I mean by that is I frequently, and I've already done it here, lecture people about how we can't just say what we're against, we have to say what we're for. And then I end up doing lots and lots and lots of these speeches or projects where I expose people in intimate detail with empirical evidence that when you say it this way, it's a problem. When you say it this way, it's a problem. When you keep telling people, you know, the world is ending even though, yeah, I'm a climate change believer. So I actually do believe that doesn't mean it's a good message that you can't do that. I, in effect, have been a hypocrite because I'm spending lots of time telling people what not to do.
0: So you got to work on the positive messaging like all the rest of us do.
1: So what I've been doing, and I did a bunch of it last year, is actually instead of just delivering the end of a project, Because it doesn't work. It doesn't work even when you do kind of the most perfectly constructed, robust message testing, and then you present it literally 30 times, right? I presented the race class narrative in 19 US cities over the course of four weeks. I have presented that either by webinar or live just in the US. I'm not counting when I did it in Europe and in Australia and in other spots. I have presented that like 70 times. And so there's this model in polling and in message testing and in research where we come up with a thing, we present it a whole bunch, we write some cheat sheets, and we assume that people are actually going to use it. That is not true. That is not what happens. People might use it a little bit. They might use it in addition to whatever it was they were inclined to say before. They might use it for a couple of weeks and then forget about it. What I've been doing and what I want to position myself to do more is actually the creation of proactive Positive campaigns like, for example, what we did in Minnesota, we ran an entire campaign called Greater Than Fear. We took the race class narrative, we baked it in there, we used it to write messaging about whatever it was the person needed to say. And we created ads, we created a logo, we created an entire multi-level brand, right? We did a social media campaign, for example, Dogs Against Dog Whistling, where you could send us a picture of your dog and we would turn it into a crime-fighting dog whistling hero. So we had clapbacks. Uh, to what the right-wing politicians who were running were saying, but we also had proactive, affirmative things. When Trump came to Rochester, rather than doing an anti-Trump rally, we did a greater than fear rally where everybody talked about what Rochester stands for and what Rochester is. We recreated this in Australia under stronger than fear. So it's actually creating proactive content in the form of ads, which I've been doing increasingly in the form of kind of an entire branded idea. So I'm doing this again, I'm doing it uh, for a group of organizations in California, we might take greater than fear and do a pan Midwest, Michigan, Wisconsin, possibly Pennsylvania, and then of course, still keeping Minnesota as the anchor. And then the other thing I'm doing is, uh, believe it or not, and I say this kind of gingerly, I feel like a little silly saying it, but I got green lighted and I have a production company for a podcast, which I've never done before and don't know anything about, that is called The Good Word, a podcast about winning. And each episode will profile one place where we took an old narrative and we flipped it, and then we won a campaign. So the first episode is Jacinda's race in New Zealand, where the Labour Party wanted her as a young member of the party to run their way and to run sort of a standard Labour trope. And she refused. She ran this positive affirmative campaign. The second episode will be Ireland. Ireland and the fight to talk about abortion in a proactive, affirmative way, as opposed to showing the deprivations and horrors of what happens when abortion is not legal. Um, the third will be greater than fear, et cetera. So that's another thing I'm doing.
0: That sounds fascinating, and I appreciate you mentioning your podcast on my podcast. You know, the hour with you just about has passed really quickly, and I, and I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. That was Anat with ASO Communications. She's at asocommunications.com. I'm looking forward to checking out Anat's new podcast when it is launched. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at resistance com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.